welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Brendan Rittenhouse-Green, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Cincinnati and author of the recent book, The Revolution That Failed, Nuclear Competition, Arms Control, and the Cold War. Brendan, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure to be here, John. The revolution to which you refer in the title of your book is the so-called nuclear revolution, which many prominent theorists have argued was operative during the Cold War. And the theory basically says, once the US and the USSR had big enough nuclear arsenals that were secure, a dynamic of mutually assured destruction, or MAD, provided for deterrence. Uh, a nuclear exchange just became too costly to both sides to seriously consider. You argue that continued nuclear competition during the Cold War undermines that theory. Explain why. Yeah, well, so the question of my basic book uh, is why, uh, after you have enough nuclear weapons to blow up the world like three or four times, why would you keep building more? Uh, and as you point out, the, the logic of the nuclear revolution is a, a kind of intuitive source of that question, which is that, um, you know, once all of your weapons are secure uh, and the other side can't disarm you in some kind of first strike, it seems like it's basically a, at, at best a giant waste of money. Uh, to keep building more weapons, to keep improving your nuclear forces. Uh, the best you can do is threaten to destroy the other guy and deter him from doing bad stuff to you. Um, and so the problem that the book addresses is that the Cold War superpowers didn't really seem to believe this logic. Uh, they engaged in an incredible nuclear competition in the second part of the Cold War, uh, one that uh, you know featured all kinds of counterforce weapons designed to sort of disarm and get after the other guy, missile defense shields that are very destabilizing and that could potentially clean up any sort of, uh, you know, uh, retaliation that the other side managed to launch after your first strike. Very dangerous weapons like that. Um, at the same time, they had these Byzantine nuclear doctrines uh, where each side would talk about how they were going to win this global nuclear conventional war that might take place over a protracted period of time. Um, and they did all of this, kind of ironically, while they were pursuing arms control. Uh, but those arms control deals, which, which took many years uh, to strike and which uh, were lauded often in public and I think widely supported within the American public, never actually accomplished very much. Uh, in, in, in the book, I refer to arms control as, as kind of the Seinfeld of international politics, which is it was a wildly popular show about nothing, uh, and it occurred while this giant arms race was going on. Um, and so this, to me, this, this competition that we saw, this poses a problem for the theory of the nuclear revolution, both in the intuitive form that I voiced it, wh why keep trying to blow up the world after you can already do it, um, but also in its more academic theoretical form. Um, and so that's the problem the book is trying to address, and that's what I'm after. Okay, so before we go a little further, I wonder if you can distinguish uh, the difference between two ideas. Uh, one is mutually assured destruction, or MAD, what you call in the book pure MAD, uh, and we can talk about why you choose pure mad as opposed to just mad. And distinguish that from this notion that comes from Albert Woolsetter, um, uh, the delicate balance of terror. What's what's the difference in substance between those two notions? Yeah, well, so the I, I would I would phrase the difference like this, um, which is 
Pure MAD, as I call it, is a theory that starts with a few simple assumptions about what nuclear weapons are like, and it arrives at the conclusion that kind of arms races are pointless and that the weapons themselves can't have very much political effect beyond deterrence, right? So once you assume basically that you can't uh, destroy the other side's nuclear weapons, that what we call in the business that each side has a secure second strike force, right? Um, And once you assume that basically uh, this kind of force uh, will always favor the defender of the status quo in a crisis, right? So that um, because uh, it's held that the defender of the status quo has bargaining advantages, um, since it's easier to take risks to defend things you have than to get things that you don't have, um, then it just logically follows that no one should ever start a crisis and no one should ever start a war, right? Which is that neither side can any longer be stronger than the other side. Uh, And so any of the advantages uh, in bargaining and therefore any of the political victories that you might win uh, through the use of military force or the threat of the use of military force in a crisis um, will be vitiated by the defender's advantage, right? Uh, And so that's what the theory of pure mad says, right? It says that basically the nuclear balance is stalemated. No one can win. Um, And the theory that I advance in the book um, is it problematizes that assumption, right? It says that, in fact, uh, the nuclear balance, while perhaps in stalemate, um, was not always and forever necessarily in stalemate. That is, it was technically delicate, uh, it, to use the, the words from Wolstetter in his article, The Delicate Balance of Terror. That is, it could change, And there was a possibility that one or both sides, depending on how technology developed and how they made their decisions around nuclear procurement, might have been able to escape MAD, escape the state of stalemate. Um, And it was partially for that reason that the superpowers ended up arms racing, uh, which is that they had this incentive um, at least to stop the other side from escaping mad, and also an incentive, I argue, to escape mad themselves if they could. Uh, And so that ultimately, I think, is the difference, which is that when you start with a balance of power that can't change, like mad postulates, then there's no reason to compete. But if you assume that the balance of power could, under some circumstances, change, then that gives you much more of an incentive to start tinkering with your nuclear forces and thinking about how you might outcompete the other side. So just to clarify, is it the case that the delicate balance theory is sort of like a more moderate form of MAD in the sense that, yes, there's mutually assured destruction and there's a lot of deterrence, but policymakers are still incentivized to tinker around the edges for some kind of advantage. Yeah. And I think the real question is what degree of tinkering is incentivized, right? And so on my construction of the delicate balance theory, that's an open question. It's an empirical question, right? And And it depends on your assessments of technology and the way things are going. Um, But I agree with you. I do think that uh, the theory that I propound and the the one that Wolstetter basically was was gesturing towards um, is a theory that that accepts many of the premises of the nuclear revolution about how nuclear weapons work. Um, It it just doesn't accept the most extreme forms of those premises. Got it. Okay. So one way that advocates of MAD explain 
continued nuclear competition, despite this mutual deterrence, is to point to the influence of parochial interests of various kinds, whether the national security, bureaucracy, the military leadership, or the effect that the defense industry might have on policy. Why are those wrong? Yeah, uh, no, you're right. And this is in the book I develop uh, what, what I call parochial mad, right? Which is sort of the, the theory of the nuclear revolution's saving throw to explain why it fails to predict the late Cold War nuclear arms competition, right? And, and you've stated it very well. The idea is that forces that are not acting in the national interest, right, but are instead acting under some kind of conception of, of their own personal parochial interests. So, you know, the classic form of this theory is the military-industrial complex, right, the people who make the weapons, like, might profit from making the weapons, even if the weapons are bad for national security. Um, but there are other versions of it as well. So certain politicians might profit electorally, from running as nuclear hawks, right? Even if that's bad for the for the nation as a whole. Um, and similarly, the, the maybe the most important force uh, would be the military bureaucracies themselves, right? Who have careers and organizations invested in these nuclear missions and who might push uh, for reasons of their own interest or culture, right? Towards doctrines and weapons that are bad for the nation, but good for them, right? And so that's the theory that the nuclear revolution or pure mad theorists use to kind of explain what happened, right? Which is, well, at the end of the day, the decision makers at the top understood that this stuff was kind of crazy and that an arms race was dumb and they tried to stop it with arms control, but ultimately they were overwhelmed by political forces beyond their control from below. Um, and I think that if you if you look at the record of the Cold War arms race, it's just not the case that that's true. Um, it's not that these forces from below didn't matter, right? They certainly did. Domestic politics in all of its forms uh, is certainly a major shaper of, of nuclear policies and great powers, and in particular, American nuclear policy. Um, but in fact, those forces were often the restraining force on the arms race. Uh, and the, the energy behind the arms race actually came, I argue, from the top political leadership of the nation uh, across multiple administrations, both Republican and Democratic, uh, in the 1970s. Um, and so, you know, there are a number of examples of this, um, but, you know, uh, one, one of my favorites is that in the Nixon administration, after, you know, you sort of elected this kind of hawkish uh, in his, in his, at least in his political origins, politician, um, you know, uh, who who favors the nuclear enterprise and and wants uh, to have sort of more uh, qualitatively effective nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, Congress neuters one of the big, uh, you know, innovations that ultimately does occur in the 1980s, uh, which is really accurate submarine-launched ballistic missiles. Uh, and, you know, the Nixon administration basically has to give up and delay that change uh, another weapons generation uh, before it's seen, right? And so that's an example of how rather than than having, you know, the, the parochial interests piling on towards more arms races, you often saw quite the opposite. What, what about the idea that there were probably a, a a mix of motivations and incentives towards nuclear competition that may not have uh, centered so much on um, gaining a nuclear advantage per se. So, 
like you, you mentioned, domestic political incentives to seem tough to the public, and that that calls for you know upping the nuclear uh, aspects. Uh, maybe you're signaling to different audiences, signaling to allies uh, that you're uh, superior in your nuclear force. Maybe it's to gain an advantage elsewhere, some kind of leverage in future arms control negotiations, or somehow it could offset some conventional uh, aspect, and you could you could uh, gain an advantage that way. Uh, could have been an elaborate peacocking opportunity. We know how states are inclined towards uh, uh, obtaining status through things like nuclear weapons. So uh, could it have been a mixture of these things where policymakers are not as rigorous as scholarly analysts in isolating a theory and testing it and, and saying that this was the motivating factor? Was it a mix? Well, let me tell you what I think. Uh, what I think drove policymakers, uh, and then I'll try and comment on some of the alternate or compatible explanations that you've just pulled out. Right. So what I think was going on was twofold. Why would you? Why would you pursue this competition, um, even given, let's say, a more technologically fluid? Uh, balance, right? This stuff costs a lot of money. Uh, what got thrown in this was a truly incredible amount of effort in terms of resources and man hours, right? Um, so what what drove the manipulation of the balance, right? And I think it was really two things. Um, the first is that the great fear in the Cold War was not that the Soviets would roll through Western Germany, right, in a war of conquest, Right. I think that at least by the late 1950s, early 1960s, right, um, we understood and the Soviets understood that that would basically be a really bad idea for everybody um, and that the war would you know, destroy Western Europe at a minimum and might destroy both the superpowers. The worry was that there would be a crisis out of which such a war might develop without either side really wanting it to happen without either side wanting to be the aggressor and just conquer things, um, but because they felt that their, their vital interests were threatened, right? So consider something like the Cuban Missile Crisis, right, which, which could have easily exploded into a global war. Um, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Uh, to make it more concrete, I think one of the big worries was, so suppose that the East Germany, right, which is the crown jewel of the Soviet empire, um, started to have rebellions or proto-revolutions the way that Hungary did in 1956 or the way that Czechoslovakia did in 1968, right? And then suppose that as the Soviets are stepping in to quiet this down, their West German counterparts rise up and refuse to let their, their East German brothers be abused, right? And so suddenly now you have a situation where the Soviets don't want to start a war with the United States, um, and the United States doesn't want to start a war with the Soviet Union, but you've got this crisis that they're being pulled together where they still have to defend their vital interests lest they lose what the Cold War was all about, which was Germany, right? So that's a long way of saying, right, um, part of the story here of the nuclear competition was in that crisis, right? You didn't want to have to back down, right? You didn't want to have to say, no, I'll lose my half of Germany, right? Or I'll allow a, a nuclear outpost in the Western hemisphere or whatever, um, because the other guy 
you know, wasn't going to back down either and, and might have some kind of bargaining advantage over you, right? You didn't want him to say, well, actually, I've been manipulating the technology better than you, and I think I'm going to win a war uh, so or at least survive it, so I'm not going to back down. Right. So you had that incentive to at least keep up with the other guy and make it so he couldn't say that. And what's more, if you could say the same thing to him, right, if in fact you had done a superior job of manipulating the technology and moving the nuclear balance um, towards you escaping stalemate, well, then you would be able to confront him with a bargaining advantage. Right. Um, and so that's one set of incentives. Right. One is how do you get out of the bad crisis alive with your values intact? Right. The second set of incentives, um, though, I think was broader uh, and in some senses more important. Right. Which is that one, um, everybody knew the bad crisis was rare. Right. You spent all your days thinking about it because that's what national security is, is trying to avoid bad outcomes. Um, but, uh, you know, an, on a day to day basis, uh, that wasn't necessarily what was going to occupy your diplomacy. Um, you know, and at the same time, you did have all of these other day-to-day -day problems of wrestling with the other superpower, um, and and as you mentioned and brought up, wrestling with your own allies, right? And so I argue that the second reason decision makers did this is because they got these peacetime gains from the competition, right? Uh, so one uh, was, at least for the United States, uh, this was a way of reassuring your NATO allies, Right. Which is it was just very hard to go to them and say, hey, I'm going to defend you. I'm going to put my country's life on the line for yours. But no, I can't actually win a war. And if a war happens, uh, we're all going to die um, and we're just going to threaten to make that happen. And that's what will avoid the war. It, it was just a really difficult argument to make. And it went much better for the politics of the alliance. Right. Um, if you could say, well, maybe the war can't be won today, but we're working on the problem. Right. We've got a plan of how we're going to back the other side down. Right. And so no matter how crazy they might get, um, if our plans go right, we've got a fighting chance, you know, to win this in the bargaining phase. And if necessary, under our breath, maybe win and survive the war if it comes. Um, and so that, you know, whether or not you actually achieved your goal of escaping mad, right, the ability to, to assuage your allies and manage the politics of Europe by pursuing that goal was one that was highly valued by American decision makers. Um, similarly, uh, I think that uh, the competition with the Soviets uh, could force the Soviet Union into doing things that made your life better. Uh, so, for instance, part of part of the American nuclear program uh, was to go after Soviet strategic submarines, um, which most Americans for most of the Cold War thought were totally invulnerable, but which, in fact, for large sections of the Cold War, um, American attack submarines could track. Right. Uh, and so the Soviets became extremely agitated about this problem and they poured all kinds of resources into stopping it uh, and basically tried to turn the Barents Sea uh, north of Russia into a kind of fortress uh, for their strategic ballistic missile submarines. Uh, and all of the rubles that they spent on that project were rubles that they didn't spend threatening the central front in Europe and making our European allies extremely anxious about the conventional force sitting across the other side of their border, 
right? Um, and so basically the argument is, is that this competition, if you're doing well, forces the other side to do things they're not good at and puts political pressures on them to change their behavior, right? So another thing that you mentioned was, was arms control deals, right? And, and it's true. Uh, the, the, the statesmen involved here were not completely disingenuous. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, the Nixon and the Ford and the Carter administrations would have preferred to live in a world uh, without an intense nuclear competition if they could have gotten an arms control deal that they thought was good enough to foreclose the competition. Um, of course, they had very demanding standards for such a deal. Uh, and the competition itself helped push uh, the Soviet Union towards accepting some of their terms on arms control, right? Um, you know, and potentially it also did other things like affect how the Soviet Union managed its alliances um, and its diplomacy in other places. Um, but uh, the bottom line uh, is that peacetime benefits of the competition were, I think, equally or more important uh, than the potential of getting out of the crisis alive. Um, and so that's how I would frame it with reference to all the other things you mentioned, right? Which is some of them, I think I would lump into the peacetime benefits categories. Um, there were others that you mentioned. Um, you know, I think there probably was a certain amount of posturing to the public Right. Um, so, for instance, I think that one of the good cases for the pathological alternative to my story um, is in 1976, uh, when basically the uh, the Republican right manages to torpedo assault to deal um, that might have led to a, 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 a somewhat less competitive outcome. Um, so it's not as though those forces were entirely absent. Um, but in general, I do think that when you narrow down on the key decisions, right, um, and you look at, this is important as well, I should add, when you look at what the decision makers are saying, right, so as you get into these debates and as you see the president and the secretary of state and defense and national security advisors sort of reviewing the defense policy options, um, they're, they're very focused on the nuclear balance, right? They're, they zero in on, you know, how is this going to affect technology going forward, right? How is this going to, um, you know, affect our ability to threaten the Soviet Union and their ability to threaten us? Uh, and in, in their discourse, you find all of these references to sort of the, the things that would let you escape from MAD, uh, and they're very interested in them. Uh, you know, they're very interested in missile accuracy. Uh, they're very interested in, you know, at least initially in the possibilities of missile defense. Um, you know, they're very interested in this, this Byzantine game of doctrine and the threats you have to have to convince the other guy that you're as tough as him. Um, you know, and, and so I think that lends plausibility to my story about the balance being central um, but I, at the end of the day, it's not as though that's the only thing. And I think you're right to set that out. One of the key takeaways from that story you just told uh, basically reiterates a key insight, I think, from international relations in general, which is that states operate under conditions of fear and uncertainty. They don't know about the future. They don't know about their adversaries' intentions. And so in some sense, it makes sense to overdo it. Um, and that kind of makes me wonder about your thoughts on how unique nuclear weapons are in this respect. So one uh, example, I, I wonder if it's useful at all to, to make a comparison to the conventional domain, for example. So 
Many analysts uh, argue that U.S. defense spending in general is excessive given the fundamentally secure position of the United States, and yet we massively overspend, and we do for a, we do so for a, a hodgepodge of, of, of reasons, really. But that doesn't necessarily make it rational in the sense that um, we need this uh, excessive, uh, excessively large and expensive military to be secure in this current uh, state of the world. Is that comparison doable? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess here's the way that I would think about it, which is that I do think nuclear weapons, um, they, they are in a way special in in this sense of evaluating the general craziness of American defense and foreign policy, um, which is, I, I like to say that original weapons are the original, or that nuclear weapons are the original sin of American foreign policy, right? Which is that after World War II, the United States disassembles its military, right? Uh, and having prevented the German threat from conquering Europe, right? And knowing and understanding that the Soviets, while they have a very powerful army, have been completely bedraggled and exhausted and destroyed by this war, um, they, it basically takes apart American military power. Uh, and the force that won World War II is within a year basically destroyed. Um, and under those circumstances, normally in a non-nuclear world, right? I think the United States would have just gone home from Europe, right? Which is that it's it's very obvious to decision makers who who have to involve themselves in in the you know heart of international diplomacy that you can't do it very effectively without military power, right? Uh, and you know, in that sense, an America that had withdrawn into itself and then decided to build this giant conventional force that we did build and did have today would be as crazy as you make it out to be. Um, but what the nuclear weapons did was they allowed the United States to have political commitments, right, without building the giant military state that, for instance, the Russians ended up having to build. Um, and so that almost in its way makes the nuclear arms race more rational after a fashion than a lot of the conventional spending um, that we saw in the Cold War, which is at the end of the day, uh, you know, everybody knew that the nuclear balance hovered over any confrontation between the superpowers. Um, and there were lots of reasons why you might want conventional forces, but uh, past a certain point, right, what, what you're really doing is you're threatening to have a nuclear war here. Um, and so the advantage in the nuclear balance was, was absolutely fundamental to what was going to go on politically uh, between the superpowers, whereas I think the conventional balance, um, you know, was not necessarily as important at the end of the day. Um, and so I would actually, you know, I would kind of come at this from the other direction in a sense, which is that, um, you know, if you're going to have political commitments overseas, uh, nuclear weapons are probably a cheaper alternative to doing it, right, than enormous conventional forces. Um, but, uh, you know, that that brings us back to the sort of the starting point of my dialogue here, which is it's the choice to have political commitments itself that is problematic. Uh, and nuclear weapons were a seductive way of convincing American political decision makers to make choices that I think they wouldn't have made in other 
circumstances. And, you know, one might argue that they continue to have a similar effect because the nuclear balance is just going to hover over any kind of conventional war. We're going to come back to some of that in a bit. But um, first, I want to ask some of the nuclear revolution advocates say that their argument is normative or prescriptive and not descriptive and predictive. Robert Jervis, for example, once succinctly put it, mad is a fact, not policy. How do you view that argument? And what does your work tell us about the difference between scholars and policymakers on this? Yeah, um, it's a really interesting question. I ultimately don't think you can really have a prescriptive theory that doesn't purport to also describe the world, right? Which is that if the theory tells you what you ought to do, right, but you're not doing it, right? I think your only alternative is to is to go to like, there, I, let me back up. Let me say there are two alternatives. One alternative is that there's something wrong with the people making the decisions, right? And the other alternative is there's something wrong with the prescriptions. Well, your prescriptive theory has ruled out the latter, right? So the only thing left is there must be something wrong with the decision ma- makers. And that's where the theory of pathologue or parochial mad comes from, right? Um, but I don't think ultimately a prescriptive theory can avoid confronting this question, um, which is that you have to, at some level, and all of the mad theorists said this, at some level, there was something wrong, something crazy about what was going on here right? The fact that their prescriptions had not triumphed was was showed that there was a, a problem with the policymakers. Um, and I guess I would just sort of suggest the opposite, which is it showed that there was a problem with the prescriptions uh, and that the policymakers, well, you know, not computers or, you know, utility maximizing, uh, you know, actors um, were, I think, very roughly rational in lots of ways. And, and they had good, good reasons in their head for why they thought these were smart decisions. It's not that you can't argue that there were better decisions, right? Um, it's just that these decisions met a kind of minimally acceptable threshold uh, for getting the things that the policymakers wanted to get. Um, you know, and, and so ultimately, uh, you know, I think I, I love Robert Jervis's uh, famous statement, right? But, you know, it would be better amended to say, mad is a fact today. Uh, and what mad will be tomorrow is the object of our policy today, right? Uh, and so that's ultimately where I think U.S. decision makers ended up. China, um, one might say, seemed to take MAD into account for a long time, obtaining nuclear weapons in 1964, but maintaining a pretty small arsenal for decades, at least relatively so. And only recently do they seem to be making serious investments in expanding and updating their capabilities. So first, just tell us what you think of those new capabilities. Um, how, How do you view those? And then if you could just give us your assessment on Chinese policy in this respect? How does it look from your perspective? How does it fit your theory or not? Yeah, well, look, I'm actually going to answer them in reverse order, uh, which is that I I feel intellectually compelled to say that uh, my theory cannot handle China for the better part of Chinese nuclear history, right? The the Chinese clearly, um, for whatever reason, uh, do not believe what the Americans and the Soviets believed, uh, and they didn't accept the delicacy of the balance, or if they accepted it, they they used it as an excuse not to try, 
right? Uh, you know, Mao used to talk about these weapons, you know, uh, and say, look, you know, you got to have a few of them because great powers got to have nuclear weapons, right? But basically, they're not good for anything, uh, you know, and you ought to focus on other stuff, right? Uh, and so for during the Cold War, the Chinese just, you know, they didn't do much with their nuclear force. It was a pretty pathetic force in superpower terms, right? Uh, you know, you, either superpower would have had a, a pretty good chance of disarming it if it had come to a fight. Um, you know, and and the Chinese just don't make a, much of an effort to improve it, right? And that goes contrary to what my theory would expect. And so I'm just wrong about China during the Cold War. Um, I do think that after the Cold War, right, and political circumstances change, uh, and the United States and the Chinese start to become rivals, um, you know, after a fashion of the old superpower rivalry during the Cold War, uh, you do start to see Chinese changes to its arsenal. Um, by and large, not sort of aggressive counterforce changes like the United States pursued during the Cold War, um, but decisions that reflect, I believe, their belief that the nuclear balance is not perfectly stable uh, and that the requirements for maintaining uh, a secure second strike arsenal um, are considerably considerably greater than they had pr pursued during the Cold War. Uh, and so the latest uh, stuff on this is probably the missile fields uh, that we have that have been seen in Western China uh, that appear to be making you know two hundred odd new silos, maybe some more for training purposes or something, um, which represents a dramatic change from the way that the Chinese had been pursuing their nuclear policy. Um, it, it is not, I hasten to add, necessarily a super threatening change to the United States. Um, which is that even if they put a missile in every one of these silos, uh, I think the United States would still have the, the warheads left to cover them. And there's no sign I've seen that the Chinese are, are looking to get after American weapons, right? So they're not investing in some of the capabilities that the Soviets invested in, for instance, to go after American ICBMs. Um, so the, the, the bottom line is that, you know, I think that we can... Uh, you know, we can bear the changes that the Chinese are making, uh, at least uh, in the short term, in their nuclear strategy uh, without freaking out about it. Um, but I do think those changes are rooted in the dynamics that I describe in my book. Uh, and, you know, my big worry in policy terms going forward is that uh, if the political relationship between China and the United States continues to deteriorate, uh, those delicate balance forces will start to have more and more play on both sides of the Pacific. Yes. So here we get to the real question. Um, you say that basically if policymakers want to avoid dangerous nuclear competition um, with China, but possibly other states as well, um, you recommend jettisoning political and security commitments that the United States has around the world. And this is particularly relevant, I think, with current debates on policy towards Taiwan. Um, explain why you think this makes sense. At the end of the day, the nuclear threat comes from politics. It doesn't come from the weapons, right? The reason why these weapons are so dangerous is that there are things that states are willing to fight over. 
right? And if you want to avoid the danger of the weapons, if you want to avoid their cost, right, if you want to avoid all of the noxious things that, that getting into an arms competition does in your own domestic politics, right, then, then you have to find a way of dealing with the problem of your political commitments and what you're really willing to fight over. Um, you know, and so, you know, I guess my message in that sense uh, is that, you know, the, 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 the problem here is not that we might be about to spend a bunch of money on nuclear weapons. Uh, the problem is that the thing we want to use the weapons to do is probably not worth it, right? Um, so, you know, the, the, all, of, all of our policy is designed around, again, you know, vis-a-vis -vis China, is designed around keeping this archipelago of allies that the United States has cultivated in East Asia, the Japanese, the South Koreans, uh, the island of, of Taiwan, the Philippines, right? This kind of containing force, um, you know, surrounding China uh, in a naval sense, right? And so, you know, it's the fact that we care about those political commitments, right? The fact that, um, you know, we've, we've decided that it would be kind of the end of the world if these countries went their own way and probably, you know, gave in much more to Chinese foreign policy on various regional issues, um, it's our desire to prevent that um, that is, is potentially going to drive a new arms race, right? And so ultimately, I think that it's, it's kind of a mistake uh, to look at the arms race as if, if it's sort of a final cause. It's more of a phenomenon that comes from the final cause of our political commitments. Um, you know, and I, I'm... I'm not very sanguine about a lot of those commitments. Uh, I really don't want to get into a nuclear war. Uh, I would prefer, uh, you know, a, a, in the abstract, a much more offshore position uh, than the one the United States has been pursuing for almost, you know, 70 years now. Um, but if you're going to have that position, then I think that one of the things that comes along with it is probably a nuclear arms race and that policymakers need to confront that. Right. Okay. So, how do you make that more palatable to policymakers? Because it seems to me that, you know, relinquishing our posture on Taiwan or even clarifying it somehow seems to be very much not what policymakers want to do. And the threat and the risk inherent in ginning up a nuclear arms race and potentially coming at the conflict doesn't seem to dissuade them. So, could it be that you could engage in negotiations with China on these nuclear questions and say, use the uh, potential forfeit of these longstanding political commitments as a bargaining chip to potentially get concessions out of China? Would something like that make sense? I think it would be very difficult. Um, you've put your finger on the nub of the problem, right, which is how to make this palatable. And at, and at the end of the book, I sort of wrestle with myself about this. Right, which is that I have uh, an instinctively kind of isolationist-minded attitude and grand strategy, uh, you know, which is that I, I care about the Western Hemisphere, uh, and under other conditions, like you can convince me to care about other stuff, but th that's where I start out, um, and you know, th that's what I would, uh, you know, that's what I would like to see, uh, but the attempts to persuade uh, policymakers over the past 
you know, three decades that people like me have made have sort of fallen on their face, right? Which is that uh, trying to persuade policymakers to give up these commitments has been very difficult, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, this leads me to the reluctant conclusion that if you're going to have the commitments, you have to defend them well. Uh, and so when I, you know, when I hear solutions like what you just offered, which is, which is in some ways, you know, superficially attractive, right, which is, well, maybe we could have a deal with the Chinese, uh, right, where, where essentially the, we, we get some kind of, you know, arms control deal and maybe some new uh, amorphous political settlement on Taiwan, and maybe that would calm things down. Uh, you know, it's like, I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily against pursuing such goals, uh, but uh, I'm not really sure that you're going to be able to come to the kind of agreement that American policymakers uh, want to come to. Uh, ultimately, I think the reason that, that policymakers probably want to defend Taiwan is that they are committed to the Japanese alliance. And the Japanese and the Koreans will lose their mind if the Chinese get Taiwan, and, and they won't have terrible reasons for losing their mind, which is that the naval situation in the Pacific, I, I argue in a, another random paper I have with a co-author, I think will change in important ways if that happens, right? Uh, and so these alliances will be under threat if that kind of deal is pursued. And it just strikes me as the kind of things that American policymakers have not been willing to do uh, for a long time. And so, you know, while I would hold out maybe some hope for it, my intellect tells me that the outcome is, you know, pretty pessimistic here. Well, I, I can't seem to land on a positive note when I talk about nuclear weapons, but uh, I thank you for coming on the show, Brendan. It was my pleasure, John. Uh, and thanks for having me on this great podcast.